Welcome to Grace. We are glad you guys are here. I don't know how many how many of you guys watched the uh, Texas Longhorns beat Alabama title last night. Okay. Well, last night Texas football coach Steve Sarkeesian and led Texas Longhorns to victory over Nick Saban's Alabama Tide. But there's another event that is happening in the future, and that is after both Nick Saban and Steve Sarkeesian both die and go to heaven. Now, when Nick Saban gets to heaven's gate, the Lord himself meets him at the gate and is going to show Saban his home. And as he's walking him through the streets of heaven, getting to his house, they finally arrive, and Nick Saban sees his house. It's, it's a pretty good house, and, and it's got, you know, on one side, <clears throat> the wall has the Alabama banners hanging over and he seems to be okay with it. But then he says, but Lord, I have a question to ask you. Lord says, what's the question? He said, well, when we came in, I saw this giant, magnificent place on top of the hill. It was high walls, and it was fantastic, and it had Texas Longhorn banners hanging over the high walls. And I want to know why Steve Sarkeesian gets that house, and I get this house. And the Lord said, that's not Sarkeesian's house. That's my house. <laughs> well, college football's back. It's fun to watch. But there is something way better than that. There's something that should be the number one priority of all of our lives. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Now, most of us are aware of the story of the sinking of the Titanic and how a shortage of lifeboat capacity led to 1,500 of the 2,200 passengers and crew members perishing in the cold Atlantic waters. What most don't know is about a meeting that happened before the Titanic took off. There was a meeting that uh, the Right Honorable Alexander Carlisle tells people about that he attended. It was a meeting in which the lifeboat capacity was discussed regarding the Titanic, and he said that discussion took five to ten minutes. He said, but then we spent several hours discussing the ship's decorations. I thought, that's some pretty messed up priorities. And wrong priorities can lead to a lot of people perishing. Well, much of church history, if you study church history, you see that throughout this time that a lot of the church got their priorities all wrong. And the result was, of course, many people perishing. So the question ought to be, what should the priorities of the church be? Well, Jesus answers that question for us. In fact, he tells us exactly what those priorities should be for the church. Well, today we're going to begin a series that we're entitling First Things First. And really what it is, is a series on the six priorities of the church that Jesus lays out for us. And this morning what we want to do is we're going to jump right in to priority number one. The number one priority of the church, of God's people. Matthew chapter 22, 
Verse 36 to 38, Jesus is asked a question, and then he answers it. Matthew 22, starting verse 36, here's the question. Teacher, which is the greatest, the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. So Jesus tells us there's nothing more important than loving God. The number one priority of our lives is to love God. There's nothing more important than the church loving God, which is expressed in a big way in our worship. There's nothing more important than us loving and worshiping God. But what does that look like for us? Well, let's read now Matthew 15. Jesus says this, Matthew 15, verse 8 and 9. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me. So what Jesus is saying here is that if you, if you're wor- if you worship, like we just did, you sing songs, but your heart is not engaged, then your worship is in vain. It's empty. I mean, it's for nothing. The drawing near to the heart of God means somehow that in our worship, our feelings come alive to God. There, there's feeling. There's affection. It's an affair of feeling and emotion, or it's not worship at all. According to Jesus, it's empty. So according to Jesus, there is no genuine worship where feelings for God are absent. So again, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but if you just went through that worship time and you never felt anything toward God, then it was for nothing for you. It was empty. It was in vain. So where feelings are dead when it comes to worship, and so is worship. Worship is also dead. So the question ought to be, so how can we make sure that our feelings are really involved in our worship? Well, here's something the Apostle Paul said, that's, and I'm going to put a couple passages together that's helped, helped me dramatically. The first is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. This is part of the prayer that he is praying for the Ephesian believers. Ephesians 1, start, let's just jump into verse 17. He says, he's praying this for them, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. A revelation in the knowledge of him. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So he's praying that, that they would have a revelation, that God would give them a certain revelation. He's, at, he's praying that God would enable them to see something with the eyes of their heart. And they're not asking for their physical eyes to see it, but that the eyes of their heart, they would actually see something. What is it he's praying they would see? Well, he's praying that they would see with the eyes of their heart the Lord. 
Now, there's four passages that if you're not familiar with these four passages, I urge you to become familiar with them because there's four what I would call throne room passages where the Bible gives us an opportunity to see into the throne room of God and realize that that right there is real. And those passages are Revelation 4 and 5, which a lot of you might be familiar with, but also Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 1, and Daniel chapter 7. These are opportunities to see what is really in heaven, what's really, really the throne room scene. See it with the eyes of your heart. I mean, you read it, and then you can actually pray into that and worship into that. Let me give you an example. I just want, okay, close your eyes for just a moment. I'm going to read a passage just out of Daniel 7, starting in verse 9. And I want you to now, with the eyes of your heart, see into this scene. Daniel 7, verse 9, eyes closed, now to see this. Thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands, angels, were attending him, and myriads upon myriads, 10,000 times 10,000, 100 million angels were standing before him. Okay? Now open your eyes now. You can see with your mind's eye, you see into that scene. And we have these scenes in which when we pray, when you pray in worship, you don't, you're not focusing on the ceiling. And hopefully you're not focusing on what's going on in the room. You're not looking at some imaginary person. You are worshiping and singing and you're looking into this throne room and seeing with your mind's eye him on that throne. And when we do that, something happens. I, something happens where there's where genuine awe and gratitude and worship happens where you just honor and you bless him and something real is happening in your worship and you are just enjoying him and loving him. That's really what church is supposed to be like for all of us when we come together and worship as we love God. But feelings matter. Again, feelings matter in our worship. Jesus confirms this when he says this in John chapter 4. John 4, verse 23 and 24, as he's speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, he says this to her, but an hour is coming and now is when... The true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must, and that word must is worth underlining in your Bible. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Must. Or it's not worship. So if we don't worship in spirit and truth, then it's not worship. 
So let's just talk about those two words for a moment. Many of you are familiar with this concept, but I want you to think about it again fresh today. Those two words, spirit and truth, correspond to the how and the to whom we worship. Worshiping in spirit is obviously opposite of worshiping in just merely external ways. It's, it's the opposite of just worshiping, uh, you know, in, with some type of empty formalism or traditionalism. Uh, it's, it's the opposite of just going through the motions. It's your worship in spirit. Now, worshiping in truth is the opposite of worship that's based on some inadequate view of God. But worshiping in truth also involves <clears throat> worshiping in the ways that God has prescribed for us to worship. So actually, worship must have right thinking, it must have right feeling, and it must have right actions, if it's true worship. So our worship must be grounded in the truth and must have strong affection, or it's not true worship. That's what Jesus says. So let's talk about this a little bit more. These two aspects. The way we worship in spirit is to make sure our hearts are engaged in worship. Make sure your heart is engaged. And make it, so that means that worship is more than duty. If you, if, if you just come to worship out of duty and your heart is not engaged, then you miss the whole thing. Now, you might say, but duty, duty's noble. And I would say, not if, not if your heart's not engaged, it's not. For example, I just got back last week from another mission trip, and, and I, I think I've mentioned before that every time I'm on these trips, I always leave Tracy a, a card for every night I'm gone. <clears throat> and these cards, you know, are, are they're love cards, romantic, all kinds of things. And then, but every night she has a date on it, and there's a card for me. Now, let me ask you this. If I would have handled a stack of cards to her, she loves to get them. So right before I leave, I hand a stack of cards to her. What if I was to say, here's the cards, honey. It's my duty. I'm your husband. Now, would that honor her? See, it doesn't honor if there's not any, if I'm not moved by spontaneous affection for her, then the cards don't honor her. Well, the same thing in our worship if I just come out of duty and I'm not engaged, then I'm not honoring him. If my affections and my emotion, if it doesn't mean something to me, then it doesn't mean anything to him either. So we need to have a heartfelt pursuit of God in our worship. So I would just challenge you, if you've not done that before, then begin to do that. If you've done it before, then take it to a higher level. So we're to worship in spirit, but we're also to worship in truth. So worshiping truth is to be precise in whom it is we're worshiping, precise, and to worship him in his prescribed ways. So who is it that we're worshiping? It matters that we're right about the whom. I've shown some of you this in the past, but I think it's worth repeating that some of you know that the UN in New York City has a chapel. And they, call, they actually call it the meditation room. And in that room, there's a large stone. And go ahead and show that slide. This is what it looks like. If you've never had a chance to go to it, there it is. That is in the UN building. 
That's their meditation room. But I want you to know it's posted about the stone. <clears throat> I want to read it to you. It says, the stone in the middle of the room has much to tell us. We may see it as an altar, empty not because there is no God, but not because it's an altar to an unknown God, but because it is dedicated to the God whom man worships with many names and in many forms. So according to Jesus, though, that kind of worship is, totally misses the mark. It matters that we're worshiping the one true God, and it matters that we know the one that we're worshiping. Otherwise, it's meaningless. It's in vain. It's empty. Waste of time. So we've got to be right about the whom we worship. And Jesus has come and revealed to us what the Father is like. That is the one that we worship. We worship the Father and the Son. But there's something else important about worshiping God in truth. It's not just worshiping the one true God. It's worshiping the way that God has prescribed. He's prescribed ways for us to worship. He's prescribed ways to help us worship. Let me give you a little, an idea of what God wants our meetings to look like because he hadn't really just left it up to our ingenuity. He actually tells us what he wants our meetings to look like. Psalm 95 is one of those passages where we are giving, given this, what our meetings are supposed to look like. Psalm 95, verse 1. Let's look at it. It says, O come, this is a call to worship. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. Why? For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. So the first thing we notice that when the people are called together to worship, what the meeting is supposed to look like. It's supposed to come together in joy and enthusiastic praise and a demonstrative worship. Why? Because God is so great. You know, it's interesting to me that you have people that were at college football games all throughout the country screaming their heads off and painting their faces and ripping off their shirts and painting letters on their bellies. Why? Because their team is so great. And then they go to church the next morning and sit there quietly. Is God greater than football team? Because he's great, the people of God should be enthusiastic in their praise because our God is great. Now, it's interesting that there's three Old Testament Hebrew words that describe our praise to God. Let me give you those words. One is yada. It literally means to throw one's hands to worship with outstretched hands. Just throw them up there because he's so great. Now, you'll see that in sporting events. You'll see it. They'll throw their hands up. Why? Because their team's so great. Yeah! But our God is so much greater. Another Hebrew word is zamar. Zamar means to make music. Praise and song. Now, the one that's used the most, most is halal. We get hallelujah from halal. It's used 108 times in the Old Testament. And it conveys the idea of praise, which is demonstrative, boastful, noisy, and braggadocious. 
So biblical praise is supposed to be enthusiastic, full of things like singing, Psalm 9, verse 11, Psalm 30, verse 4, Psalm 33, verse 1 through 3, Psalm 47, verse 6 and 7, and on and on, singing, playing instruments, Psalm 33, 1 through 3, Psalm 150, clapping, Psalm 47, verse 1, lifting your hands, Psalm 63, verse 4, Psalm 134, verse 1 and 2, Psalm 141, verse 2, and on and on, shouting, Psalm 32, verse 11, Psalm 33, 1 through 3, Psalm 66, 1 and 2, dancing, Psalm 149, verse 3, Psalm 150, verse 4, I could go on and on and on. We are told, we are given postures and, you know, that we can, that help us worship. Because God is so great. And it's actually in us. You know, children just do it right away because they're not inhibited. I mean, you start playing praise music and you watch children twirling and raising their hands. And then they get older and start worried about what people think about them. But it doesn't stop with demonstrative praise because we see something happen in the psalm that we need to notice. Psalm 95, now get to verse 6. It's like there's changes gears here. <clears throat> Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we're the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. So now it gets real personal. First, it's like enthusiastic praise because God is so great. And now we see becoming humble Adoration because he is our God. It was very personal. The primary word used to describe worship in the New Testament is proskuneo, means to come close to, to kiss, to reverence, to prostrate oneself, to adore on one's knees. So now you see a different posture happening. And now there's not shouting going on anymore. It's more like there's, like you're whispering as you're getting closer and closer and lower and lower. So our worship becomes very intimate. And those postures are given to help us. See, we've got to remember that so many people have the wrong view of, of man. They, they have the Greek view. They're more impacted by Plato than Jesus. They think that it's all about the soul. You just need to worship in the soul because that's, that's the real you. That's the, you know, the Greek view of man. The Hebrew view of man, the biblical view of man is, no, you're all wired together, mind, body, soul, spirit. And so one affects the other. That's why the way you think can affect the way you feel. Why? Because you're all wired together. That's why your body is involved in praising the Lord, what's going on in your heart, in your affections. And so these postures are all given to help us worship. I never, I've never, I don't rebuke people for not using these postures. I don't say, you know, you need to get with the program around here. I don't say that. I will say these are given to help you, and you're robbing yourself not to use them. They help us to worship. And when we draw close to him in intimacy, it's one thing about intimacy we know that when a, a husband and a wife are intimate, that intimacy can bring forth life new life. Well, that principle is true in the spiritual realm. As, as if you walk into a room where the people of God are intimate with the Lord, there's, you feel the life in the room. There's life. If you walk in a room and there's not intimacy with the Lord, you feel no life. Intimacy brings forth life. And our intimacy with God brings forth life in this place in many, many ways. 
So we draw near to God in intimate worship. Why? Because he's our God. He's our shepherd. We belong to him. We're close to him. And in that, when we, want, we, we just draw close in nearness and experience intimacy with him in our worship. Then what happens? Psalm 95, verse 7 and 8. We find out that God wants to speak to us. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He wants to speak to us through the word. So we have the preaching of the word every Sunday. We have reading of scripture. You might have, someone might give you a prophetic word. Sometime during the morning, God might speak to you in a still small voice. But he wants to talk to us. He wants to talk to us. So that's what our meeting is supposed to look like. And, we're, you know, and I just encourage you to take advantage of those postures. I will I just briefly tell you my pilgrimage on this because, like many of you, I, my first experience in church was like the first church of the Frigidaire. Some of you know that one. <laughs> or the Frozen Chosen. Any of y'all know this? And so, but I'm, I'm reading in my quiet time, I'm reading about all these postures, and I'm thinking, how come we don't do this? I mean, do you have to be a different denomination to do this? And so I started doing it in my personal times. Tracy does it in her personal times. And then one day we just said, let's go somewhere, some meeting where this is legal. <laughs> so we went to a meeting, and we sat in the very back, and, and the meeting starts off. And, I mean, everybody, as soon as the first strum of the guitar, everyone's on their feet. And so we, so we stand up, too. We stood up. And all of a sudden they start clapping, and, okay, I can do this. And then a woman next to me lifted her hands up. I went, I, I mean, I literally, I was about to hyperventilate. Okay, here we go. I had my hands about this high. You ever see those foam, foam rubber hands at sporting events? I felt like my hands were like that big. And then this woman, she jumped out and Alan started dancing. I said, okay, time out, time out. Well, we got to draw the line somewhere. But we got to make sure that Jesus impacts the way we worship more than Plato. And it is really in us. Sometimes people might say, you know, my my arms might be up and say, you know, Gary must really be into the song or into worship. Actually, I might not be, but I'm trying to be. Sometimes, bless the Lord, oh, my soul, we command our soul. Sometimes I'm saying, okay, body, let's go. Let's lead the soul. Get with it. Let's catch up. But I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there before the day's the, the, the meeting's over, you know, and and just and then just think about the Lord. Focus into that throne room scene. The reason Tracy and I sit up front is not because we think we're important, but there's way too much going on in the room for me. There's way too many distractions. But if I'm up front, I just want to make sure that I'm connecting with the Lord. So I urge you, you know, make sure that you are really connecting with the with the Lord. So let me give you. I'm going to give you four things that can that can hinder you <clears throat> from worshiping in spirit and truth. Four things. Here they are. Number one, hidden sins. Hidden sins, unconfessed sin in the life of the believer restricts worship. So before you get here, don't walk in the room with any unconfessed sin. Repent, confess your sins to the Lord. First John 1 John 1.9, he, you know, he, we confess our sins to the Lord. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Come to the meeting with no unconfessed sin. Because if you do, here's what happens. Proverbs 28, verse 9 through 13. Proverbs 29, he who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. 
So cleansing is part of really connecting with God. Make sure you don't have unconfessed sin. But if you come to a worship service, some of you, my guess is some of you did this this morning. And that is you came and you've, you've got unconfessed sin. And you're sitting in here and you wonder why you haven't connected with God. Well, unconfessed sin really will keep you from experiencing his presence. So confess it. Repent from it. And confess it to him. And so we can come and really make sure we're connecting. Let me give you a second thing that can keep you from really worshiping in spirit and truth. Second thing is pride. Pride. Pride kills praise and worship. Kills it. And pride is being more concerned about what the people in the room think about you than what God thinks about you. And thinking, you know, I'm not going to raise my hands or clap or, you know, even I'm not even going to do a little bit of movement. You know, I, I don't want anyone to think, you know, I'm a wacko. I don't want to look foolish. Pride keeps you from really connecting with the Lord. So many miss the presence of God and the blessings of God because of pride. Let me give you a third one. This is a big one too. It's tradition. Tradition. Matthew 7, 6 through 8. Here's what Jesus says in the whole passage. He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. So many people say, well, it's not, it's not my tradition to worship like that, Gary. It's just not my way. It's not the way I was raised. It's not my tradition. And I'd say, so? Are you going to follow your tradition or the word of God? And here's the problem. The problem is a lot of people are bound by their tradition and then their kids are learning the same thing from them. My daddy doesn't do it, so I'm not going to do it. Tradition. Follow the word of God, not the traditions of men. And the fourth one, the fourth thing keeping people from really worshiping spirit and truth is the devil. The devil despises praise and worship. He despises it. He'll do all in his power to stop it. He hates it. Why? Well, I believe, and I don't have time to prove that to you this morning, but I believe that Lucifer probably was the praise and worship leader in heaven before he was kicked out of heaven because of his rebellion, his attempted coup. And I think when he hears worship, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard to him. He hates it. Hates it. But even more than that, our praise and worship is a powerful weapon against the devil. That's why he wants to stop it, because it is powerful against him. And I've seen on uh, several different occasions throughout the years, demonized people that have been in a, in a worship meeting, that uh, as the worship got intense, they just began to manifest demons. Like the demons had to get out of the room. I've, I've seen people run out of a room, screaming. So the, the devil hates it. He hates praise and worship. So he'll do whatever he can do to stop it. He'll do whatever he can do to stop you from doing it. He doesn't want you to do it. Realize that. He does not want you to do it. A lot more is at play than just normal life around you. Demons are trying to stop you from worshiping and praising. And by the way, if they can't stop you from doing it, then maybe someone 
close to you who he can cause their defeat to actually defeat you. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. He can, he can go after them, and you see, when, when they go down, it's like you're tethered to them. And you go down too. So he's at work. Don't let him do it. Let me give you some practical uh, uh, advice here. I'm going to ask the worship team to make their way back up because we're going to close with, we're not going to talk about worship without doing, doing it again. So make your way up. But I want to give you some practical helps for worshiping spirit and truth. Number one, get a good night's sleep on Saturday night so you're rested and ready to worship on Sunday morning. I want you to think about that. If you, if you come Sunday morning and you're exhausted because of whatever was so important Saturday night, then you're saying to God that that was more important Saturday night than Sunday morning. You're telling them that by your actions. So put a priority to say, well, you know what? I'm going to make sure I'm rested so I come here and give it my all. And come ready to enter his courts with thanksgiving and praise. I mean, come time you get out of your car and you're coming through these doors, you're entering with thanksgiving and praise. You're ready. You're ready. You know why some people go to like a praise worship conference and they say, how come like, like everyone just was so ready to worship the first strum of the guitar and how come that doesn't happen every Sunday morning here? And I'm like, because if we came on every Sunday the way they came to that conference, it would. Come ready, come excited, come you know, it enters courts of thanksgiving and praise. Come and know and confess sin. Don't wait till like the fourth song to go, all right, Lord, I guess I'll confess this. Come ready, know and confess sin. And come not worried about what other people think about you in this room. Because actually, even though you, you think they're thinking about you, they're really not even thinking about you. And worship with enthusiasm and passion, worship with that humble adoration, and then listen for the voice of God. Expect God to talk to you before you leave this building. He could talk to you through the message. He could talk to you through a scripture you was read. He could talk to you through a still small voice or something somebody says to you. But expect him to talk to you. He wants to. Expect it. You know, I have a dream of, of gathering as a church as excited and happy as like your family on the first day of vacation. Or when you're Thanksgiving around the turkey. Or you're at the Christmas tree and you're handing presents out. That feeling right there. I have a dream of one day us all coming to church with that feeling about meeting with God. I have a dream too of where the presence of God will be so strong, so strong during worship that an an unbeliever could walk in and go, surely God is in this place. You know, I have a dream where our worship is so thick in the room that, that grudges just melt in the midst of festering wounds, just get healed as we're worshiping. And I have a dream that every Sunday we'd come together and there would just be a strength that would come into all of us, ready to hand a new, handle a new week because we've met with God as a family. <clears throat> Let's all stand. Now, we're, we're going to sing this song. It's called Gratitude. And part of the song is about your soul. Don't you get shy on me. Don't you get shy on me. So I tell you what, if you've never just kind of let it rip, let it rip this morning. You guys ready? All right, let's do it.
ready to yada for the Lord this morning? Let's do it. All my words fall short. I've got nothing new. How could I express all my gratitude? I could sing these songs as I often do. Every song must end, and you never do. Release your hands to the Lord. Come on. So I throw up my hands and praise you again and again. Because all that I have is a hallelujah. Hallelujah. And I know it's not much. I'm nothing else before a king. Except for a heart singing hallelujah, hallelujah. I've got one response. I've got just one move. With my arms stretched wide. I will worship you. Lose your hands. Come on. So I throw up my hands. Praise you again and again. So blessed like David did. Come on. Come on, my son. Don't you get shy on me. Lift up your song. Cause you got a lion inside of those lungs. Get up and praise the Lord. Every hand, every heart. Come on, my son. Oh, don't you get shy on me. Lift up your song. Cause you got a lion
ourselves just loving you all week in a deeper more powerful way than any of us have ever experienced. We pray Lord as we come together again each Sunday that it would just build and build and build and you get more and more what you deserve Lord. you deserve so Lord I just pray now your blessing on every one of us and blessing on everything and everyone that matters to any of us and Lord just use us this week to shine the light of Christ other people. In his name we pray. 